You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by herpetologist Sean Riley from the Department of Integrative Biology. So welcome, Sean. Thank you. I'm glad yeah. to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to have you. And uh, we've had a few other herpetologists on the program, but we'll... We'll give the audience a refresher here. Can you tell us what herpetology is? Herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. So that would include lizards, snakes, turtles, crocodiles. And then on the amphibian side, you'll have frogs, salamanders, and Sicilians. So is there a reason they're all put together in one group? Yeah, but it's not a very good reason. I think it was just in the past, people didn't really understand how things were related systematically and um, they kind of divided things up into warm-blooded cold-blooded and reptiles and amphibians just got lumped together even though they're very distantly related but they're both cold-blooded then yeah and generally slimy right some well, some slimier than others <laughs> <laughs> amphibians are slimy i don't think there's really any slimy reptiles that i know of okay well, there you go. Don't be worried, uh, <laughs> children. Only the amphibians are slimy. Okay, so did as a child, were you really interested in like catching snakes or something? Is that how you got into this? Yeah, I grew up in San Diego County uh, back before they had developed all the natural land. And um, my dad was a marine biologist uh, with the government, and he studied whales and dolphins. So I always was really interested in wildlife, but I'd just go out in the backyard and you know, catch lizards and stuff because we lived right up next to some uh, some hills with natural chaparral. Nice. So, yeah. what what's the uh, most common lizard you can catch in San Diego? Well, I would say probably fence lizards. Most anywhere in California, if you see a lizard, you probably saw a fence lizard. Is that that uh, Scaloparus? Yep, Scaloparus <laughs> occidentalis. Yes. See, I'm winning. I just yeah. Because I'm with people who catch lizards, and they say it's almost always a fence lizard. I've been trying to remember that one. I just think of, like, Skeletor. That's how <laughs> yeah. I remember it. So yeah. I was really lucky. When I was a child, my dad took me out of school uh, in the middle of second grade. And we went up, and we actually lived at this lighthouse on the central coast of California. It's called Piedras Blancas. It's near San Simeon on the southern end of the Big Sur coast. And he was doing whale surveys for gray whales. But while he was doing that, I would tag along with this herpetologist Galen Rathbun and we'd go do these pitfall traps so we'd just go check these buckets and find snakes and lizards and salamanders in the buckets and I just thought this is the coolest thing I've I've ever seen like this guy's getting paid to just go out and catch lizards so is it you just put like a bucket in the ground somewhere hidden and they just go along and then yeah, fall you, into you, it you basically just dig a hole put a paint bucket down in flush with the ground and put like kind of a board over it so things will go to try to hide under the board and just kind of fall down into the bucket. Did, and I just, you know, I just thought that was the coolest thing. I, I went up to my dad and said, I'm going to be a herpetologist when I grow up. And I was only seven years old. And here you are. Here <laughs> yeah. you are. Did you ever catch anything besides uh, herps? Oh, yeah. All the time. You catch little shrews or mice or rats or insects. But uh, a lot of times if a shrew or something fell in the bucket, it would eat the lizards. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, fair enough, right? You yeah. know, <laughs> more space, tasty meal. Nice. Okay, so you just like followed your dreams all the way. You're like, I want to be a herpetologist. All the way. Well, yeah, I got a little bit off track. Um, when I was an undergrad, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I did a senior thesis catching snakes around 
the Santa Cruz area. I went to UC Santa Cruz, but I didn't really think that being a herpetologist was something I could do. And I actually worked in the biotech industry for three years after my undergrad. And it was only once I was trapped in this kind of day-to-day -day routine in this room with no windows that I thought, you know, I just need to, this is my one chance. I got to do whatever it takes to follow this dream. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but at least I got to give it a shot. So I went back to school. And that was for your master's, That right? was for my master's up at Humboldt State University. And what did you study for your master's? For my master's, I studied a species of salamander called the black salamander, and it's basically endemic to the redwood forest from about, you know, the San Francisco Peninsula up to the Oregon border. Interesting. So salamanders, I'm thinking they're pretty slimy, so they must be an amphibian. They are an amphibian. Yes. That's right. <laughs> nice. I wouldn't uh, associate them with like a redwood forest just like instinctively. Is that but that's a normal habitat for them? Yeah. It, you know, the redwood forest harbors a lot of salamander diversity here, which is really kind of interesting because the redwood forests themselves are really young. They've only really been established the way they are now for the past 5,000 years. Oh, wow. But yet you have all these salamander species that are tens of millions of years old that are endemic to the redwood forests. So they must find it a really awesome place to live then. Yeah, I think so. I think this area along the north coast here has just been really climatically kind of stable for tens of millions of years. Maybe always hasn't been redwood forest, but it's probably always been kind of moist coniferous forest. Nice. So was your master's similar to your seven-year-old self? Did you just put buckets in the ground and catch <laughs> salamanders? No, it was even more fun. I basically got to get out a big map, kind of mark out where we know these, these salamanders live, and I needed to collect tissue samples to do some genetic analyses on these. And there really wasn't very many fresh tissues available. So basically, I got to mark on this map all the places I wanted to go look for these salamanders. And I would just get in my truck and go drive and and look for these things. And a lot of times I'd have friends that would come help me. So it was a really fun. Nice. And so what did you do when you found them? At first, I really didn't know how to find them. The first few times I went out, I couldn't find any. And I thought, I'm going to have to change this project. But then this one time, we we found this really specific type of rock rubble talus. They call it talus slide. And it was kind of on the edge of the forest where the forest meets the meadow. And we started flipping these rocks and we just start finding tons of these things. And, and I thought, okay, now I know exactly what type of microhabitat they like. And after that, it was fairly easy. I would just kind of have this search image for this, this certain type of rock formations that got some sunlight, but were also not completely exposed to sunlight. And every time we found those, we'd find the salamanders. And then when, when we caught them, I would take some pictures of them, do some measurements, and then just take off a a couple millimeters of the very tip of their tail for genetic analysis. And salamanders are really cool because they regenerate not only their tails, but their limbs. Oh. So you could cut off the entire arm of one of these things, come back a couple years later, and that arm would have grown back. Yeah, not recommended for audience members, but it is physically possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I, I'm I'm sure there's a whole subset of research on regenerative properties and salamanders. Though. There is, but not as much as you would think. You'd think like they hold the key for maybe regenerating tissue and in humans, but uh, there's really not that much research going into interesting. it. Interesting. Right 
So take heed, young scientists. Maybe we're giving you uh, some some good ideas here. Yeah, it could help a lot of people. Yeah. So did you what? What were you asking a very specific question for your master's? Project? Yeah. I mean, basically, I had looked at this field guide and also noticed from randomly finding these salamanders that they looked really different in different parts of the range. Uh, in some areas, they were just completely jet black. And then in other areas, they were black with these big white spots. And then in, up in the north, they were black with this kind of golden green frosting. And so to me, it looked like three different species. And what I really wanted to know is, are these things different species or are they just kind of like different races? You know, like maybe they all interbreed where they meet, but they just happen to look different in, in different areas. And did you find out? Can you tell us? <laughs> I can tell you that um, there are multiple species within it, but it doesn't line up perfectly with these morphs. So there's not just like three species, the spotted, the black and the frosted. It's, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And the species boundaries uh, are not where you think they would be. More complicated than that. Huh? I've heard that a few times in science, <laughs> <laughs> just every once in a while. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So different color, color morphs, different color types might be related to their environment. Uh, I, I think so, yeah. So these really dark ones, they live right on the coast in what would be kind of the most dense redwood forest. And if you've ever been in a really pristine old growth redwood forest there's almost no sunlight that makes it to the forest floor so it's really dark in terms of the amount of light that gets down there but also the forest floor is just this really dark kind of decomposing leaf litter it's kind of like this jet black kind of muck and we think that they're just really dark to to blend in and this spotted morph is found more inland where it's kind of patchy redwood forest with some oak trees and some woodland mixed in. And it's a lot more dappled sunlight that makes it down to the forest floor there. And so we think that they have these spotting pattern to kind of break up the outline of this dark salamander. And then up north, they only occur on this really specific type of rock that's kind of like a, it's kind of like this dark shale you know, if you put the salamander on this rock, you, you you almost can't see it unless it moves. The flecking is just a perfect match. Interesting. Yeah. So if you can't use their color to figure out which species they are, how did you do that then? That must have been the tissue samples you exactly. took. Exactly. So what I did is I first kind of took a phylogenetic approach. You know, I basically created a big tree that shows how all these different individuals or populations are related to each other. And then I collected a whole bunch of data from, from nuclear genes. Um, the tree I made was from mitochondrial DNA, which is only inherited from your mother. So it can give you a sense of how things are related, but not really of if things are interbreeding. So then I used all these nuclear genes and kind of did some demographic analyses where you're looking at the number of migrants per generation from one population into another. And there's this kind of special number of, of one if there's less than one migrant per generation, it's usually thought of that that's not, it's not enough gene flow to prevent these things from becoming new species eventually. So basically not exchanging genes between populations is what can lead to new species because exactly. they're just not exchanging information. Exactly. Information. Yeah. They just essentially start accumulating all these mutations that are specific to each population 
And then even when they come back into contact and interbreed, when they try to kind of combine these two gene pools, they don't really interact very well because they're kind of adapted to, uh, to work with each other. But then you put these gene combinations together that haven't been together, and sometimes things just don't work out, and you have this, it's kind of called a, you know, like a hybrid inviability or, you know, decreased hybrid fitness. Yeah. So a lot of times they'll make babies, but they're just really not very well adapted to either environment. And you could almost think of this like a sci-fi movie where like, you know, you send like one population of humans off to another planet for long enough. And then when they come back, they just don't look human anymore. Right. Yeah, you're not going to make babies with them. Maybe and... all of a sudden those humans have got gills and they try to interbreed with us and you got some half guild thing that's not It's not, not going to live in either Earth atmosphere. Other, yeah. oh, okay. I can see that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the lens of sci-fi helps me figure it out. But this is real life. Uh, so... Then you came to Berkeley to do a PhD. Did you start working on like the hippopotamus or did you stick with the <laughs> reptiles and amphibians? I stuck with the reptiles and amphibians, but I thought this was my opportunity to do really something really different. Not not only in terms of what you know types of reptiles and amphibians I'm studying, but, but what part of the world I'm looking at. And so I've always been interested in Indonesia. I first got interested in it because it's got the best waves in the world. And I'm a big <laughs> oh, surfing fan. California guy. Yeah, huh? that's right. But I also started to learn a, a lot of other things about Indonesia. And one of the cool things is that it's it's basically the most biodiverse country in the entire world. So what um, does biodiverse mean? So basically, if you're counting up the number of species that exist there. So in terms of marine life, it's always been thought of as like, the most biodiverse place in the world in terms of corals and fishes and all those types of things. But also on land, it's extremely biodiverse. And that's for a number of reasons. One reason is that it's a big country. It's over 3,000 kilometers from the northern tip of Sumatra to the southern tip of Papua, which is on the island of New Guinea. And it straddles the equator. So this is all tropical islands. And it's always been known that the tropics have more species than temperate areas just because it's been kind of stable for longer. Also, it's like a nice, it's a nice place to be in general. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's this really big tropical country. And if you think of other big tropical countries like Brazil, they're also the most biodiverse in the world. But Indonesia has two other things on Brazil. And that is, it's composed of over 17,000 islands. Whoa. And so no part of Indonesia is part of a continent. It's all islands, and there's tons of them. So as soon as something is able to get to that island, it's already somewhat isolated. It's just this isolation on all these islands that promotes things diverging into new species. So kind of like going back to the sci-fi metaphor, it's just like all these different planets, right? And so Yeah, get exactly. There and... They might as well be different planets because these ocean barriers, you know, if you're a frog... If you even touch salt water, it's just going to suck the moisture out of you and you're going to be dead within a few minutes. So how does a frog get from one island to another oh, then? Oh, man. I, the frogs, I just really don't know. Because you know. some snakes can swim. I know that, right? Yeah, yeah. The snakes and the lizards, they can raft fairly easy. But even if a frog gets on some vegetation raft, if a little wave splashes on it, it's probably not going to last too long. Uh, interesting. Although yeah. I did, uh, slightly unrelated, but not really, um, I have read some hypotheses about how monkeys got to South America, and it's thought that they rafted from Africa. 
like across that's, the Atlantic that's, Ocean. That's a long raft raft. Yeah. I mean, I've taken little little boats just, you know, a couple miles out on the ocean and been, you know, like, well, this is tough, you know. Puking but, your brains out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay. So Indonesia sounds awesome. I yeah. mean, who wouldn't want to go there? Exactly. And the, the last reason why it's so biodiverse and which really ties into my project is that it spans multiple biogeographic realms. So you've got the islands in the West, like Borneo, Sumatra, Java, the big ones that people have heard of. Those are part of what's called the Sunda Shelf. And so when sea level becomes lower during the maximum extent of glaciation, you know, during these glacial cycles, the sea level drops 120 meters and all these islands become land bridge to Southeast Asia. And all the stuff that's from Asia kind of can walk out to these islands. So that's why you've got elephants and tigers and orangutan orangutans and rhinoceros and all these all these things and then they essentially stop at the eastern edge of borneo and bali those are the last islands that become land bridged and then on the other side you've got the island of new guinea and that becomes land bridge to australia so that's why on new guinea you've got kangaroos and all these marsupials but then there's this region in between there that's known as Wallacea. It's named after Alfred Russell Wallace. And it's just all these oceanic islands. So islands that have never been connected to either continent. Um, and it's just got the strangest biogeographic patterns. It's like there's really no rhyme or reason as to why things are where they are. And there's a lot of endemic species. So there's a lot of really unique things that are not found on either of these continental shelf areas and, yeah. and wallace was just sailing through these islands looking at the species composition on each island and wondering what the heck is going on like i just sailed like just a couple miles from this one little island to this next one and the turnover in species is it's like almost 100 percent. and so that's why he actually drew wallace's line which is the most famous biogeographic line in the world Hmm, I'm not familiar with Wallace's line. <laughs> yeah, it basically skirts the edge of the Sunda shelf. So he, ba without knowing about plate tectonics or which islands become land bridged, he, just from looking at what species are where, he was able to essentially draw a line that traces the edge of the Sunda shelf. Awesome. Yeah. And just uh, stepping back two steps, but as a reminder to the audience, endemic means found nowhere else. So That's right. all these animals you can't see anywhere else in the world. Huh? Mm -hmm. So what exactly is your question for your dissertation? So I'm essentially looking at this archipelago called the Lesser Sunda Islands. It kind of is a stepping stone chain of islands that goes from, it starts right near Bali, and it goes all the way over to New Guinea. And so you can think of it like a little stepping stone bridge between these two biogeographic realms. So that these islands, when they emerged, there was nothing on them. But then all the species that are there either had to come from Asia or Australia or New Guinea. And they start kind of hopping their way, you can think, out onto these islands. And it's always been thought that this is like the best example of a two-way filter bridge in the world because each little water barrier between these islands is essentially filtering out more organisms. And so you get this really cool pattern where the islands in the west near Bali and near Asia have mostly Asian species. And each island as you hop east, you get 
fewer Asian origin species and more Australian origin species. So it's this really, really nice pattern when you look at it like that. And I wanted to see if, if this is true for, you know, reptiles and amphibians. Are they really kind of colonizing these islands in a stepping stone pattern? And also, how is this affecting diversification and, and like species formation? Are you, are you going to tell us the answer? Do they go in a stepping stone? Absolutely not. Absolutely it's, not. It's, it's never that easy. It's, it's so complicated. You know, I think that what I'm starting to realize is that the geological history of these islands is so complex that it would only be a stepping stone pattern if the islands had existed in their current formation forever. Because this is, there's like three or four major tectonic plates all kind of meeting here. You've got the Indo-Australian plate, the Oriental plate, the Pacific plate, and the Philippines plate all grinding together. And it's essentially like spinning and swirling all this ground together tectonic plate edges. And if you actually look at the archipelagos, they're kind of forming these curved, swirly lines uh, islands are smashing into each other that had been isolated for a long time. Other islands that were once continuous island are being ripped apart. So, you know, not only are things moving around, but but we're seeing these patterns where like, okay, why is there always two species on this one island? One on this side and one on this side. Well, it's probably because they were separate islands in the past. And then you get other things where like, these islands are really, really far apart. The things on them are always really closely related. Like the flying lizards are really closely related on these two islands, but it doesn't make any sense where they are now. They must have been closer or joined in the past. And Do they actually fly? Flying lizards glide, but yeah, that's... that's so they're, they're, they're ballsy, basically. They're pretty amazing little <laughs> animals. They just like have turned their ribs into these little supporting structure for their skin that they kind of fling out on their sides they actually grab the front of them with their front arms and kind of maneuver the wings so that they can steer in air wow and they just jump from one tree and can glide like you know 30 or 40 meters like to the other tree i'm sure just one example of some of the crazy adaptations you see in indonesia yeah it's it's pretty fun so can you give us a sense of what it's like to work there how do you just like island hop yourself with boats and wander through the forest it is a lot of a lot of stuff like that you know one of the things about here in california we've got these great field guides they tell you exactly where species are found and then you can look at these really sophisticated road maps and figure out what's the best road to drive um, but in indonesia there's very few resources there's really no field guides that tell you exactly where to go to find these things and even when you look at a road map it can show a road on the map but it may not exist or you know there's roads that exist that are not on the map and so you really just kind of show up on the island and just have to you kind of wing it you know it's like rent a car or get a driver and just say let's just drive in this direction and you're just kind of looking out the window going Ooh, ooh, that looks good. Stop the car. We want to go look here. And a lot of times you get out and look and you don't find anything. But that's really part of the fun. It's kind of, it's a really, it does feel like exploring. Yeah, you've definitely got more of that old school naturalist side of things where you're just 
and you're just literally walking around and looking at stuff. That's yeah. what I like. That's my favorite kind of biology. Yeah, it's really fun. And um, it really kind of takes you off the beaten path in a lot of cases. You know, usually where a lot of the people are on these islands, if you know, the habitat is not that great. You know, they're, they've got to live and they're, you know, they're farming and they're cutting down, you know, the forest for firewood. So a lot of times you have to get to the most difficult places to get to, which, which means really rough roads, maybe going through dangerous areas. There's a couple times where we've had to take boats to islands that they say, well, this boat runs once every two weeks and sometimes it just stops running. So you may get, you know, stuck on this island if you go there. <laughs> so, okay, you must share one crazy story with us. You must have one crazy story you can share. Um, yeah, there are definitely a number of, of crazy stories. Uh, so we wanted to go to this island called Wetar. It's called the Forgotten Island. Even in <laughs> Indonesia, uh -oh. 17,000 islands, this is the Forgotten Island. And, you know, we we got on this boat and it was a 24-hour boat ride. Oh my gosh. And this is not a cruise ship, I assume. No, no. This is an extremely uncomfortable ship that looks like it's going to fall apart at any second. Um, <laughs> and they're, you know, packing goats and chickens and and water buffalo and stuff on the boat that are, you know, walking around you. You know, we're just kind of setting out sleeping mats on the decks of the boat, trying to rest. Hoping you don't get trampled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thinking about what we're going to do if the boat boat sinks. Um, and then it just pulls up to this island and it, it, it felt like Jurassic Park, you know, pulling up to this. All of a sudden through the mist, you can see these mountains just covered in the most lush jungle you've ever seen. And just not any buildings or roads in sight. It just looked like there was people. It looked like people had never been to the island. And then there was this just rickety little, you know, pier that came off. And they just stopped there. We threw all of our gear, you know, off the boat. And then the boat just left. And we thought, we, we don't know when we'll see this boat again. Uh, because we learned that there's no cell service on the island. There's no internet. There's no way to get in touch with the outside world. And you have to be ready to get back on the boat when it arrives. It's just going to show up to that pier, and you basically have to have all your gear packed and ready to throw on the boat. And we had no idea when it was going to show up next. It was, you know, the shortest time was two weeks, but it could have been months if the seas were bad. <laughs> so That's it. it sounds stressful. <laughs> yeah, we just thought, you know, we may be living here for a while. But in the meantime, let's, you know... Let's do what we can find do. Find some and herbs. Find some herbs. And so do you bring, you must bring your own food. And, and what about water? Do you have to worry about that? We or? brought our own water filters and we brought some food, but we, we actually, we needed to get food on the island somehow. And so, yeah, we basically met up with, with a local there and was living in this local's house. And he and his wife were providing food for us, which was mostly rice, um, and then our water basically came from these giant barrels full of rainwater that, you know, we would have to filter. And the boat must have come back because here you are. It did, but the days leading up to it were extremely stressful because the amount of gear we had was hundreds of pounds and, you know, over a dozen giant pieces of luggage, which is a lot of work to pack up and to drag out onto this pier. And we had to be ready. And so... We basically had people 
along the coast, like at least one person, like looking out for the boat, looking out at the horizon to when someone did see it, they ran back and said, we have to pack up everything in like 20 minutes and get it out there. And so we were just frantically throwing stuff in bags and boxes. We we were still had, you know, animals that we were trying to prepare. It was it was chaos. It's like castaway. It's like yeah. Robinson Crusoe <laughs> it there. Really was. <laughs> Shipwrecked. It was. Wow. Well, that sounds incredible. Yeah, it was fun. Man. Well, so we're actually uh, almost out of time here because you're such a joy to talk to. But I should ask just before we end, do you have any words of wisdom for younger scientists who are thinking that you know, just looking at salamanders in the redwoods isn't enough. They want to do something crazy like this. You know, you don't have to do something really crazy for it to be really worthwhile or to get a lot of satisfaction, you know, out of doing it. I think starting local is a really good way to understand biology and understand your local animals and habitats. And then using that as kind of a springboard to go somewhere else really exotic. Because if you don't even know about what's in your backyard, it's going to be hard to show up to some other country and, and think you're going to you know, understand it. So, yeah, okay. Think local. Look at, uh, Go for a walk. Look at some animals. Yeah, start local and then you know, work your way up. But I think you know, anybody can do this kind of stuff. Uh, you just really have to have, I think it really takes having a passion for it and also you know, really, really going for it and not giving up. Awesome. Yeah, great words of advice. Do you have any last words before we end here sean i don't think so but uh, if you guys ever get a chance to go to indonesia you should go there make sure you know where the boat is <laughs> know when the boat's coming <laughs> yes very true well uh, thank you so much yeah my name's tesla munson and this has been another episode of the graduates here on calyx today i've been speaking with herpetologist sean riley about his work here in california and also in indonesia uh, looking at salamanders and what sort of herps were you looking at in Indonesia? Everything? Oh, flying lizards, fanged frogs, white-lipped pit vipers. You're just making these things all up. All sorts of cool stuff. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to definitely have to Google some of these animals later and get a sense of fanged frogs. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I knew frogs had teeth, but fanged. I like that. So, okay, great work. Lots of really interesting biology then and trying to understand biogeography and mm -hmm. how things are related and how they evolve and adapt and and just how we get all this craziness exactly. all this diversity that we see yeah very interesting stuff well thanks again sean and yeah this has been another great episode of the graduates where i speak with uc berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world and we'll be back we're going to be back in a little bit uh after after the new year, I think. So stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX, Berkeley.